it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back to the Situation in the Story podcast, where you can peer into what happens behind the page as I pick authors' brains about their experiences, their process, and their purpose. I'm your host, Chris Moore. If this isn't your first time listening, please pause the show right now. Leave a rating and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Your feedback will help the show grow so that I can continue to bring you incredible content and more often. As always, thank you for tuning in. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. For my seventh episode, I sat down with Dr. Eva Hagberg to talk about her book, How to Be Loved, a memoir of life-saving friendship. Her book was first published about a year ago and was released in paperback just this past week. Eva's writing has appeared in the New York Times, Tin House, Wired, and Dwell, among other places. She holds degrees in architecture from UC Berkeley and Princeton, as well as a PhD in visual and narrative culture from UC Berkeley. Why do you write? My like number one value in my life is freedom. I mean, I prioritize freedom over everything else. And when I'm writing, I feel more free than I ever imagined I could feel than I feel in any other part of my life doing anything else. I mean, I think like, I was really thinking about this question and I was glad that you sent it to me because I think that there's a lot of answers that I want to have. Like I want to say that I write to connect with readers and I want to give people permission to do things. And those are all sort of true, but between you and me and all of your listeners, there's <laughs> reasons like nine to 17. Um, I mean, really I write because I love doing it. Um, I remember when I was finishing the book, I would just take my computer and take a chunk of text and look at my editor's edits. And I would just sit for an hour and go over and over the dialogue and think, should this be a semicolon or a comma? I mean, that and that level of concentration and focus is like pure bliss and pure freedom for me. <laughs> yeah. Like that, that's like the drug that I, that I want. Um, that's the high that I look for. And it's handy that like that particular obsession with words and sentences and narrative and all the sort of grammatical and structural parts, like that there is an audience for that work. But I definitely do it for, it's funny because I was going to say I do it for myself, but I actually never write for, for myself, quote unquote. Uh -huh. um, I don't write in a journal. I don't have a diary. I never write something without an idea that it will be published. And I think I need that sort of framework to 
I don't know, justify or validate or, or give me a little bit of like um, a structure around it. Yeah. yeah. But really, I just love writing. And at the same time, I like I am like every other writer where I do everything possible in my life so that I can write. And then when I'm actually doing it, I'm like, oh, fuck, like, when is this over? <laughs> like, wh- you know, why is this my job? Why wasn't I just an accountant? Um <laughs> Not just an accountant. Being an accountant is is very difficult, but like it's a little bit maybe less self revealing. Right. Um, it's a little bit less <laughs> like let me just tell everybody that I'm weird with men or <laughs> you know all the things that I get into in my book. That's interesting that you say that you feel freest when you are like zoned in on something, focused on what some people might call tedious, <laughs> almost work. Um, which reminds me of how you kind of lost that ability when you got sick. That was, that was really, really, really hard. And so I had a brain injury. I had a brain hemorrhage and it affected my, my brain. It affected my ability to think. And one of my biggest fears was that I would be brain damaged, but not recognize that I was brain damaged. You know, there's a section where I talk about like, like, how will I know? you know, if I have a personality change or, or, a, or a mental change, because um, it's I'm just relying on my brain to give me information and signals. And I remember being in the hospital after I'd had my brain hemorrhage, but before I was diagnosed with it, when my doctor thought that I had undiagnosed depression, I realized that I was not communicating in a way that I was used to communicating. I mean, I was used to being really articulate and really smart and really sharp. And they thought I was like a lovely but quite dim person who was depressed and just didn't know it. And I kept trying to explain to them, like, no, I'm a writer. I'm, I'm a professional writer. I'm in graduate school. I'm getting a PhD. I'm very, very smart. Something is very wrong. If you think that I'm not smart, you know, if, if you're not, because no one in my life has, I mean, I, I've had many criticisms, um, valid and, you know, maybe invalid levied at me, but nobody has ever said that I'm like, not that smart. Like, that's right. not something that ever happens. <laughs> but I was unable to clearly articulate this. And then they would say, you know, do you want a sandwich? And I was like, I don't know what a sandwich, you know, can you yeah. explain what you mean by sandwich? So, so I knew like I wasn't going to be able to write my way through this experience. I wasn't going to be able to write my way out of it. And I also wasn't going to be able to reason or think or argue my way out of it. So I had to develop other coping skills. I mean, I think for, in retrospect, The way that I lived my life before I got sick was I had all the control. I thought, right? I thought I had all the control. Yeah. Um, And I would experience these sort of extraordinary things and I would just internalize them. And then I would go home and I would write an article about, you know, a very expensive house. But somewhere in there, I would sort of force some of my feelings into a sentence about home or a sentence about longing. And so I always knew okay, I'm just going to store this in my body for later, but it will become some form of art. And when I was sick, I didn't have that promise. I didn't know I was going to get better. I certainly did not know I was going to end up writing a book about it. And so I remember thinking to myself, like, I can't actually just save this for later. I can't just tell myself it's going to be copy one day. I have to find some other way of coping. And that way of coping turned out to be hanging out with my friends. Yeah. Um, And trying to laugh and like seeing movies and eating candy. Yes. (laughs) So were you unable to kind of promise yourself that you would turn it into art later just because you didn't know if there would be a later? 
that was a huge part of it. I did not think that there would be a later. I mean, I really thought that I was going to die. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Your book, How to Be Loved, mm -hmm. paperback on the 4th, which is exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. How would you describe the book? Uh, the book is a little bit of a Trojan horse. Okay. Um, so there's there's a couple layers of the book. So one layer is it's a story about me and I was somebody who was very ambitious and, and very lonely and very afraid of letting anybody ever see me and get to know me and very afraid of emotions and a series of kind of unbelievable, mostly medical events um, kind of ripped away all of these very carefully constructed layers of self-protection that I had developed and kind of brought me out into the open and to my absolute shock people saw me and were like oh i love you i would like i would i have always loved you let me spend time with you and let me help you so the sort of insofar as it has a narrative cathartic arc which it does i sort of believe in very standard structures you know i start the book kind of an asshole i mean <laughs> i was reading the first chapter to one of my friends and she was like oh you're you're like not that great. You know, what, why are you starting with this? And I was like, oh, no, we need to have a character transformation. You know, we need to go somewhere. So we have to start kind of like, you know, really kind of homing in on all the things about me. I'm selfish and I like don't think about others and I'm like yeah. self obsessed, like all these things. We really highlight those. Yeah. And then, you know, then I get sick and then I face my death. Um, but the difference between this and, and other, I don't want to be, you know, specific or direct, but it was important to me that the transformation for me wasn't like I got sick, then I had new ideas, then I was different. Uh -huh. It's like I got sick, my defenses were down, and I was able to see other people more clearly mm -hmm. and see that they were loving me. And it was really their love and their relationship to me that transformed me. So I'm actually less of an agent of my own transformation um, then I think a lot of sort of hero's journey stories. It's more like these people were always here. And the book focuses on three friends in particular, Layla, who I met when I was 15, um, who really sort of helped me grow up and, and become an adult. And then Allison, who I met when I was in grad school, and we were both sick at the same time, and she was actually dying. And I was very obsessed with, with the idea that I was dying. And that produced a sort of interesting tension that I explore a couple of times. Yeah. And then my friend Lauren, who came with me on this sort of totally bizarre desert quest where I was really not sure if I was losing my mind and having a nervous breakdown or had an undiagnosed systemic chronic illness. You right. know, like one of the two or possibly both and. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of one layer. And then the other layer is really... Um, a sort of indictment of capitalism, uh, which I said in an event in the Hamptons, and that did not go over <laughs> super well. Well, I heard you say that. I've read that or heard you say that somewhere else, and I'm so interested <laughs> to hear about that because I didn't, I didn't see that. You didn't pick up on that. No. So, so here's here's where I think the argument is is um, right. Capitalism is sort of based on an idea of like progress is inherently good and growth is inherently good and things are always sort of getting bigger and better. Right. Um, and I realized when I was sick that a lot of the comfort that I was getting, a lot of comforting things that people said to me were something like, this is very bad, it will get better. Like, don't worry, it will be better. In the future, it will be better. And I was facing a situation where it might only ever get worse. So I had to 
ask myself, can I be okay if I only ever get worse, quote unquote? And can I learn to live truly sort of one day at a time instead of thinking this suffering is all in service of some future gain? And so in that way, I mean, it's maybe not so much against capitalism as it is against the idea that progress is inherently the most comforting thing. I mean, I think we're used to, we're sort of taught as a culture to tell each other that the terrible thing will end one day. Mm-hmm. You know, the poverty will end, the suffering will end, the, the sickness will end, um, the drug addiction will end. And when it ends, we will be okay. It's almost like Protestant-ish or Puritan. Yeah. Yeah. Like totally. The struggle will be worth it. You know, like. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, what if the struggle is forever? What if it never gets better? Can I still find meaning in this moment? And can I still find meaning in my life? And loving Allison as she was dying was a really powerful sort of articulation of that because I wasn't investing in a future friendship with her. Like I sort of knew there's only one way that this ends. This ends with me, with with one of us losing the other. Right. Um, and do I still want to be in this friendship if it isn't going to be like, oh, in 20 years, we're like going to be on the beach in Mexico, like having an amazing time, you know, in 20 days or months, one of us is going to be grieving the other. And it turned out that she died and I got better. What's your take on like the classic saying everything happens for a reason? (laughs) (laughs) When people said that to me when I was like unable to figure out how to eat a popsicle because I was on the neurosurgical floor after having almost died. um, (laughs) I was like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I think when it's said disingenuously by people who are uncomfortable with other people's suffering, it's very frustrating. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that, and that's where the third layer of my book is I want it to be like, we're all suffering. Um, and there's this moment at the end where I sort of realize, like, I think I've been through this extraordinary life, but actually every single person that I know has had their version of what I went through. Like, we're all suffering. We're all growing. We're all really in this together. And so I think that if somebody who is kind of awake to their feelings and aware and has had their own experiences with with everything happening for a reason if they say to me like listen i really really have faith that you will grow from this then i'm like thank you so much for that reminder but if it's somebody that i meet in line at the grocery store <laughs> and they're like everything happens for a reason i'm like fuck go you. fuck yourself yeah, yeah. exactly so yeah. i guess like when it is because i i do actually I don't know. I'm I'm really back and forth on this because I believe that when I choose to fully accept everything that happens to me, my experience of my life is better. And when I think that the things that are happening to me are a clerical error and I don't deserve them, then I suffer a lot more. Yeah. And so when I tell myself everything is happening as it is supposed to, I feel better. But I see people suffering in ways that to me are unfathomable. I see like systemic inequality and structural oppression and things like that. And I'm like, that doesn't seem like that stuff is happening for a reason. Right. You know, so it's very like, I think it's a very privileged position for me to be able to say like, oh, all of my suffering has happened for a reason. And I think the reason is just that I'm like nicer, which is not that huge of a of a global payoff. Maybe it's more like everything has a consequence, like a result. Like you 
not necessarily that the universe made you sick or God or whatever in order to for the A, B, or C to happen, but because you got sick, now you're a little nicer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think if my... So I'm going through a divorce right now. And, and I think when I, when I tell my, when I don't tell myself my divorce is happening for a reason, but I think to myself always, what is the lesson here for me? Yeah. Like, is, is there a way in which my divorce can be a teacher? Then I'm like, okay, this is excruciating, but it's not intolerable or unreasonable. Right. And then that feels better. It almost feels like... (laughs) divine in some way like because you were so closed off to others like some force was gonna some power is gonna force you to have to be vulnerable or learn how to receive love I mean I definitely have a spiritual practice and I do believe that I have a higher power I also know that this isn't the book that I would have written where I were like I looking out for myself in a way if that makes sense um yeah I mean I do it's funny because I was just talking to a friend of mine about how so my divorce is now paperwork has been filed with the state of California and I'm waiting for a person I have never met to check a box and basically grant me permission to break up with somebody and I was like my life hangs in the hands of somebody I've never met you know some man probably and my friend was like what if your life hangs in the hands of a higher power like a loving higher power I was like oh well okay we can we can sort of believe that I do feel strongly that I am guided throughout my life and I sort of ask between I am actually being guided by forces beyond what we can see. And my brain is very complicated. And it is telling me that I am being guided by forces beyond what we can see. But actually, I'm just exerting constant free will all the time. I will say that throughout my life, things have happened or not happened that at the time I was like, how is this not happening? This is the most obvious thing that should happen next. You know, I'm going to exert my will times 10 million to try and get it to happen and it doesn't happen and three years later i'm like oh my god if that had happened yeah you know so i i do really i live my life through a process of kind of surrender and i'm in another process of surrender right now where i don't know what the shape of my life is going to be and honestly i kind of miss the clarity of being sick because it was just so it was so easy to know what to do next i just had to go and submit to the next doctor and the next hospital and the next surgery and the next you know yeah and i do have to get another surgery soon but like beyond that i'm like wait where is the guidance i'm like what am i supposed to do you know somebody send me a sign and I've learned like if I have a higher power, it doesn't communicate with me through really hard to comprehend signs. Mm-hmm. It's just that my life unfolds. And again, it's about my attitude towards my life. If I think, interesting, I, w- I was like basically forced to sell all of my furniture. And if I think, wow, what an opportunity for true freedom, instead of thinking like I just set $20,000 on fire. Right. Both both are true. So a lot of your book deals with uh, learning to receive love. It wasn't so much that you had a tra- that you transformed yourself, but the way you kind of perceived others did. Mm-hmm. Um, and your friend Allison, you say she midwifed you into being the person you had always wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Who is that person? Ooh. I wanted to be somebody who wasn't afraid of other people's feelings or my own, who was able to show up for people in a way that is real and and measurable. 
I was talking to a friend recently that the most common complaint levied at me by new friends is that I'm not available. And she was like, you're incredibly available. And I was like, right, but I don't, I want to be the kind of person who when a thing happens, I am, I am there if, if I am wanted, you know, I definitely am very careful about not just inserting myself into dramas that I don't belong in, which yeah. I used to do all the time. I used to be like, I am, an, I'm amazing in a crisis. <laughs> People were like, we actually do not want you in this crisis. <laughs> So now I'm really direct. I'm like, okay, you know, do you want me to come? No. Okay. If I come, will you be mad? No. Oh, okay. Then maybe you do want. So I'm going to be somebody who knows when to show up and can show up. I want to sort of give, I do want to give permission to people to feel the way that they feel. I mean, I, I talked about my book at this, um, at UC Berkeley to, I think a bunch of freshmen and sophomores. And after the class, like 10 of them came up to me and they were like, I really thought I was the only one who felt that way. Like, I really thought that like, there was something wrong with me that I was so calculating all the time and so afraid of people and like, reading your book, they were like, honestly, it was uncomfortable. (laughs) I felt like you, like one friend described it, like I like just went into her like chest and opened up her heart and took it out and then showed it to her. And she was like, (laughs) that's how I feel about the book. (laughs) That's amazing. So she was, (laughs) yeah, go ahead. (laughs) But she was like, yeah, it's, it's actually, it's not super comfortable. And I think that's part of my role is, yeah. is to do that. Um, and so the book, I think, is fairly polarizing because people that are ready for that are like, oh, my God, I feel so seen. And people that aren't ready are like, yeah, I don't get what's going on here. I'm like in this place already where I know... I need to open I need to open my heart up to people. I want to feel more connected because I've spent so much of my life up until very recently just terrified to be vulnerable or, or close mm-hmm. to people. And question I had was like before your illness, you said you were kind of closed off, but did you have a lot of friends at that point? Yeah. So, I mean, this is like the weird thing is I was very, I had a lot of friends and was pretty popular in college and was pretty popular after college. I mean, I lost some friends when my drinking got like really super rough, but then I made a bunch of new friends in recovery. I wanted to be really clear in the book that my loneliness was, was, was always internal. It's not like I was sitting at home being like, I wish somebody would call me. People called me all the time. People wanted to hang out with me. I was always in a romantic relationship, which is, you know, its own. (laughs) <laughs> its own thing. Um, but I was constantly like invited to things and people seemed to be happy to see me. But I was just like, they're happy to see me because I've tricked them. But actually, I'm a disgusting gremlin monster. And the minute they know that they're not going to love me. And the thing that was amazing about the book was that a, a lot of those people like read it and they were like, Eva, we, we always knew. Like, I never tricked anybody. No, we know like, that you were a filthy gremlin. No, they, they knew that I was like very emotional and afraid and insecure mm-hmm. and that I was sort of like, and they were just like, but we just like loved you anyway. And one of my friends in particular, uh, this great writer named Adam Nemet, whose novel is called We Can Save Us All and is amazing. I talked to him a couple nights ago about something. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I mean, you know me, like, you know, I don't, I don't understand emotions or something. And he was like, Eva, like, <laughs> You've always been really emotional. You've always, but like, we've all always loved you for it. Like I, I had this idea that I was like tricking everybody and I was tricking nobody. The, the sort of gremlin part of me, like wasn't any more 
monstrous than anybody else's. I think that's sort of the point is like, we, we all maybe have this like shame monster, but we all see it in each other and we all love it. And I just thought that mine was like bigger and worse than everybody else's, which is its own form of, you know, grandiosity, which is like, no, I am supremely yeah, know, fucked up trash. Yeah, yeah. So that's the perfect, perfect segue here because I was, you know, thinking of how much I relate to that, to, to the uh -huh. to the idea of being special, right? So, like, not only better than everybody else, but also, like you said in the book, I'm wildly important, I barely exist kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, and I told you I've spent, like, many years talking to my therapist about this conundrum. So, like, where do you think it comes from for you? Or, like, what is the function of that? You're saying everyone has it, but I think, like, some people tend towards it more extremely than others. Yeah. Thinking, like, ah, you know, nobody, you know, I'm fucked up beyond repair or whatever. Nobody's quite as bad as I am. Right. But also, I'm better than than but, yeah, yeah exactly so, this just reminds me of i was um i was hanging out with some people who were trying not to drink and somebody brought up having a grandiosity problem mm -hmm. and i was like i went up to her after the meeting and i was like i understand that you think you have a grandiosity problem but honestly mine is out of control <laughs> like, like mine is bigger and i realized i was having a fight about who was more unmanageably grandiose yeah you know? <laughs> that's how it manifests or at least did 10 years ago i mean i think for me like I was raised in a very, very, very successful, productive, brilliant set of families. I remember some of my earliest memories were my father telling me that like when he and my mother got together, everybody was like, oh my God, you two are each, you're each like the smartest, most accomplished people that are possible. Like when you have a child, that child will be extraordinary. So I, I basically grew up thinking that I, like I didn't want to waste my potential because I was like, well, there's only one of me. Like they only had one kid together and that kid is me and every, you know, all their friends from college are really concerned that I be amazing. So I better be amazing. So I probably am amazing. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of like a little bit of where like the ego grandiosity came from was just having that reinforced, always having teachers tell me how smart I was and having people, you know, I remember my mom telling me when I was 11 or 12, like that I was brilliant, but lazy. So I still think I'm lazy. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I still haven't like updated that message. Um, but you know, the keyword that stuck out was brilliant. And at the same time, I thought I was lazy. I got pretty bad grades in college. Um, I didn't show up to class a lot. And so I sort of felt like I was just skating by on like my parents' reputation in some way. Not that my parents have any reputation. They're not like famous, but it was like this imagined reputation. I think, I think I just have a core of self-loathing. I mean, my core wound, you know, as my therapist likes to say, yeah, is, exactly. is just unlovability and self-loathing. And I mean, I think my parents did the very best that they could. I found out recently this summer that when I was very, very, very young, like a year and a half, both of them left me at the same time for a period of multiple months. I was talking to my mom and she was like, oh, yeah, it was amazing when you came to visit me in Germany because I hadn't seen you for four months, but you recognized me, you know, <laughs> and I was like, oh, you, how old was I? So it was like a year and a half. And I was like, oh, so I was with my dad. And she said, no, I mean, your dad, you know, your dad couldn't take care of you. So I was like, so my biggest fear is abandonment. And I'm like in therapy for like 11 years, you know, I'm like trying, like, why do I fear abandonment so much? <laughs> if only there were some, you know, answer. Right. So I, I told this to my mom and she was like, listen, like babies don't have memories. Babies can't form memories. There's oh, no way that this impacted you. 
Like, I don't think, you know, right. What we know now from child (laughs) development studies is if you like leave a baby, it's going to get a little dysregulated. Yeah. Um, So I think that part of, you know, my core sort of unlovability comes not because my parents didn't love me. My parents are, are, I'm very, very close to both of them. I don't, I'm not angry with them for this. But I think that it definitely contributed to my growing up and being like, okay, I'm like about to be left and I probably don't deserve care or something. My father and I get into this in the book, like my father left when I, my parents got divorced when I was one and a half. My father was pretty MIA until I was like 16. And I suffered a lot because of that. I mean, I really thought that if I were better, he would want to visit or if I, you know, if I were different, he would not have left. I mean, there was all this stuff. And the reason that I have such a close relationship with him now is that I really, as an adult, took the time to grieve that. And I communicated that to him. And I was like, I just want you to say that you're sorry. And he finally was like, I am sorry. And I was like, okay, great. So I've had to, I mean, I, I, you know, I've not had to, I've gotten to repair those relationships. But I think that I certainly didn't grow up in like a loving two parent home. I mean, I had this stepdad who was abusive and alcoholic and violent. And, you know, there were, there were a lot of ways in which I shut myself down pretty uh, intensely as a child in order to survive. Yeah. Um, and, and definitely, I think some of those coping mechanisms sort of drifted into adulthood. What was your relationship with your body before the trauma of illness? I'm pretty disconnected from my body. So I had a, a bicycle accident when I was 13. I kind of like smashed my face on the Oof. concrete, um, knocked my teeth out. And the doctors like ditched them back in, but they're really mangled. So I was pretty ugly for my entire <laughs> 13 to whatever. So, I mean, I had developed, I was, I was dissociating by like 15 mm-hmm. completely thinking that reality wasn't real and whatever else. My brain was very creative. Yes. So it's something I'm, I've been working on in my adult life is reconnecting with my body. But sometimes I almost welcome illness. Like right now I have a cold. I haven't had a cold in years. And it, mm. it somehow puts me back in my body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like more familiar with your body now or less familiar since your diagnosis? Mm. Or- yeah. I mean, so I had no to sort of set the stage, I was in this relationship with somebody and they would talk a lot about tightness that they felt in their IT band or um, how they were allergic to pork. And they knew this because they felt sick after they ate pork or (laughs) they had, you know, numbness. And I remember just being like, how do you know those things? (laughs) Like they were like, yeah, my stomach gets upset if I eat too much dairy. And I was like, again, is there like a test that you can take for this? Like, how do you know that your stomach hurts? Like, I don't, hmm. I just thought that they were like magic. I was like, what the hell? Like, hmm. where? and to further illustrate this, I mean, I was in Portland, I was living in Portland, I was riding my bike downhill really fast, hit a pothole, flew over my handlebars, broke my fall on my right hand. Mm. I call my friend and I'm like, I'm not sure what's going on with my hand. And she said, if it was broken, you would know. And everybody said, if it was broken, believe me, you know, the pain would be you would know. Mm. I was like, well, I guess it's not broken. So I walk around with a broken hand for a week (laughs) before I finally go to urgent care and they do an x-ray and they're like, you have a broken wrist and a broken elbow. How did you not know? And I was like, I don't know. I just didn't, 
Well, then I, mean, I couldn't use my hand or like my arm didn't move, but I was just like, <laughs> I don't know. This was before you got sick. This is before I, yeah, this was, this was before everything. This was like a random freebie, you know, medical freak accident. <laughs> um, so that was kind of my vibe. Right. And then I was, I was feeling some sort of weird symptoms, you know, for a while I knew I was dizzy a lot, but I didn't really know why. And when I had the brain hemorrhage, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. I started throwing up like 48 hours before I went to the hospital. Mm -hmm. I remember I was sitting with my partner, we're eating pizza, and all of a sudden I was like, God, I really need to puke. So I just, but I was like, oh, you know, just happens sometimes. So I just start throwing up <laughs> and don't take it very seriously. And then I go to sleep and then I wake up and I throw up again. And then we're standing and we're talking and they're really upset at me. And then I feel this like blackness rises in my eyes, right? I fall down. I completely lose consciousness for like 30 to 45 seconds. Uh -huh. I come out of it again. I don't know what's happened. I throw up again and I just like went to sleep. I mean, <laughs> I just was like, gosh, just, you know, having, having a time. I mean, my friend was in town. I, I felt really bad. I was like, sorry, I keep like puking, you know, and I'm really confused. I mean, whatever. I go to the hospital. They're like, yeah, you had a fucking brain hemorrhage. Oh you my know? God, dude. Yeah. So that, I mean, it was fucking wild, you know, and then trying to report my symptoms, you know, mm -hmm. I, I just had no, I mean, I was so out of it now. I mean, I have right now I have a six and a half centimeter by six and a half centimeter endometrioma, like in or on my ovary. So I have like a grapefruit sized benign tumor in my, in my pelvis right now. And I can feel it and I can like feel when it moves and I can feel like I know what's going on with my hip joint. I know that my right side is tighter than my left. Yeah. I understand that like I have tension in my jaw and in my neck. I do a ton of body work now. And when I go see my practitioner and they say, how do you feel? I can say, like, I feel like, you know, I, I want somebody to like open up a tap in the back of my head and like pour all, like, I'm very, very connected to my body now mm -hmm. uh, in the way that my partner was at the time that was incomprehensible to me. And now I teach yoga occasionally and I'll ask people, how do you feel? And they're like, good. Yeah. 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 Feel good. Feel good. <laughs> and then I'll look at their body and I'm like, Oh, it, you know, it looks like your right shoulder is a little hiked up and then I'll touch it. And they're like, you know, they realize that their shoulder has been like jacked up for like six months or something. Mm -hmm. um, and so also part of what I love doing is just gently being like, Oh, what if, you know, we moved it like this. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, I, I physically suffer a lot. Like I, I'm having symptoms right now. It's, it's possibly from my like unregulated vitamin IV that I got on Thursday. Like, you know, I might be, I, I'm either ovulating or having a reaction to glutathione or my cyst is exploding. And I'm, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like garbage, yeah. but I'm sort of used to feeling like trash. Like it's like 40 to 50% of the time. Mm. And like that level of suffering actually is is kind of just annoying like i remember the first four years of physical suffering were sort of interesting like i was like wow i'm really learning i'm really on the edge here really learning and now i'm like yeah this is just the same i actually don't i'm not learning anything i mean i probably am but i feel like i'm not i'm like this pain is annoying yeah i just want to feel great but i felt so great a week ago and i still remember that and it will happen again yeah my therapist said 
thoughts originate in the mind and feelings originate in the body, I still have trouble saying like, oh, I'm anxious. Well, where do you feel that in your body? I have no fucking clue. <laughs> like, right. So what, what kind of body work do you do or recommend? So I was in a system-centered therapy group for two years, which was really extraordinary for that, where we would say like, you know, what does shame feel like? And we would be like, oh, shame feels like a tightening in my chest and a warmth in my belly, like stuff like that. Mm-hmm. My therapist is pretty somatically oriented. So this the work that I do with her is a lot of, I'll be telling a story and she'll be like, ooh, is there a feeling there? And I'm like, ah, no. Ah. And then she's <laughs> like, this is why you pay me. Yeah. You know, slow down, take a breath. Can you tell me that thing more slowly? And then I'll often cry. Yeah. So that's the sort of like mental work that I do. I see um I see a magic body worker in Berkeley named Rachel Bouch who just does a combination of like total magic and and literally just like doing stuff with my sacrum that just like makes it move. I do yoga. I mean, I'm a trained yoga teacher, which basically just means that I can do practices on my own and kind of feel what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I see a shiatsu body worker right now um, who's awesome, who's in bed where he's very intuitive. So he'll just be like, for a while after I decided to leave my marriage, all I could do was like walk. I would just walk for like hours and hours and hours a day and just feel this like intense grief. And he was like, yeah, grief is metal. You know, grief is like a metal energy. Mm. Um, and so it makes sense that you're like walking through Manhattan, which is like so much metal. Um, and just like feeling kind of like, like I was just so strung out. I had to like walk it off, you know, yeah. for hours. I do a lot. I mean, I, I, what, and what I suggest is like, if it feels really annoying and stupid, it's probably the right thing. Um, <laughs> my friend just started seeing my body worker and he just like asked her to lie down and breathe. And she came home and was like, that was such a fucking waste of time. Like, I don't know how breathing exercises are going to help me. And like two days later, she had an experience that she'd been like trying to have for like nine years. Oh my God. Know, that she'd been trying to like work out in talk therapy. I think for anybody with like a significant trauma history, like I had to get into body work to get to the next layer of healing. Yeah, that's exactly um, where I am right now. I know yeah. I have two therapists and I've told them both like the next step, like, I gotta somehow yeah. get back in my body. Like I can't even cry when I want to cry. Do you do massages? I did start uh, a couple months ago. I'm not independently wealthy. It sounds like you might be. <laughs> I I am not. Yeah. Um, I am financially insane, and I'm in <laughs> so much debt. It's it's astonishing. Yeah, um, me too. <laughs> and yeah, no, I mean, no, I, I I'm I'm definitely not independently wealthy. Um, but I also prioritize right this shit yeah i i as a kid was so active my my mom couldn't get me back in the house at night i never wanted to stop Mm. you know skateboarding Mm -hmm. biking basketball whatever Mm. and like (sighs) then i wrote my story over the last couple years and had like a wild like two-year relapse Mm. on alcohol I thought I was far enough or I had dealt enough with my trauma right. to handle it. And I obviously hadn't. I noticed it's only in the past couple of years that I've truly like stopped moving my body. Mm-hmm. Like I'm afraid to or hmm. afraid my body will betray me or something. Uh, so it's really weird. I don't know if it's just a secondary response to like reliving that trauma story again. 
by writing right. it. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I am. But I did go to yoga a couple times in the last couple of weeks, and and it was it was nice. Like I almost just cried in the middle of the class. Oh yeah, yeah. So it was like, yeah, this is obviously like totally bodily. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I heard that was so helpful was about titrating in what you can stand. So I was, I couldn't tolerate anybody touching me for probably a year after everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And just being able to really say to people like, no, I don't want you to touch me was extraordinary. And then I would start touching other people that I felt safe with. It was really like incremental body work. Um, Because I think sometimes were you know I'm extreme so I want to do everything all the time immediately but like me too I didn't have, yeah I mean I didn't have anybody touch my head. Rachel in Berkeley she touched my head before anybody else did and it was like she she had to work with me for six months mm. before I felt safe enough to let her touch and she could sense you know that I that I was like don't touch my head and now she's like jamming her fingers underneath <laughs> my skull bone she's like moving them around we're chatting you know, but that's because it was such a slow buildup. If she'd gone right in there right. and been like, yeah, let me give you craniosacral, I would have just like screamed and shut down and like never seen her again. I do have a massage coming up in nice. March, but also almost makes me cry sometimes. Like, that's nice. Oh, yeah. I, I cry in every massage. You do? Oh, yeah. Okay. I get so weird with my massage therapist. It's great. <laughs> and there, I always end up getting the one who's like secretly also a witch, you know, which is right. amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Okay. All these illness. First, you were thought to have, yeah, your brain hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. Then you were thought to maybe have brain cancer. Then they found a heart condition and the whole mold journey. And it seemed like at times you obsessed over whether you would die and when and then other times you were like i'm dying like that time where you were brought in uh in an ambulance and you just knew like this is it and you were really calm and peaceful about it and then other times where you wished you could die and you lost your dear friend allison what is your relationship with death like now so I'm very sure that death is not the end. So I, it's funny, I, I had a, I talked to a psychic medium yesterday, so I'm feeling very like death is not the end. I'm not like trying to hasten my own death along any, any more quickly, you know, like I'm not like, ooh, can't wait to die. But I'm a lot less afraid of it than I used to be. A lot less afraid. I, I have had a feeling lately that I don't have a lot of time left. And so I have to really like get things like, I don't want to spend my short amount of time remaining doing bullshit. So I'm not independently wealthy, but I have a consulting company. And that's how I make money is I do consulting. I don't really like it. And I feel like it's not I'm like not on this planet to tell right. like men to check their email. You know what I mean? Right. But it pays for massages and acupuncture. So whatever. <laughs> and I'm really good at it. And sometimes it's fun. But I think sort of feeling the nearness of death is a really helpful tool to be like, all right, in my as Mary Oliver says, one wild and precious life. Do I want to spend it doing what I'm doing? Not really. But my proximity to death also doesn't, like I think in the movies, you know, somebody gets diagnosed with something and they like feel amazing, but they have six months to live. So they go <laughs> skiing or they do whatever. Their bucket list. They do their bucket list. Yeah. I don't have, my bucket list, honestly, is just like shooting the shit with my friends. Like when I was really sad, I was going to die. We're really scared of dying. I remember driving around in Arizona and thinking like, but what do I want more of? You know, why am I so attached to this life? Like, what is it that I'm so attached to and so afraid of losing? 
And I just like looked, you know, out the car at the scrubland and thought about my friends. And I was like, I just want more of this. Like, this is all that I want more of is just like hanging out with my friends and talking garbage and listening to like Taylor Swift, you know, like, mm -hmm. that's it. That's actually that's the ticket. And so I think when I die, I'll be really sad that I'm not doing that. But I also believe that like, I'll be doing something else, which is pretty rad. When other people die that I love, I feel very, very sad. I also, somebody that I know lost some, lost their partner very, very suddenly recently. Mm. And that to me seems, that's one of those sort of incomprehensible things where it's like, but I think there's this immediate drive to reverse it. You know, I just think like, oh, well, but they should, they should not do that. They should, they should like switch, fix that somehow. And I know when Allison died, um, I had a very different relationship to death. That was before I started getting into like psychic stuff. I remember just feeling like the world has a different access now. Like the, like their, the impact of her presence on the world and now her absence. Like I was like, the world is off kilter and it felt permanent. Mm -hmm. And now it doesn't feel permanent because she visits me and we hang out and mm -hmm. she visits my friends and she visited my book editor. Like she's all over the place. I mean, I do feel tremendous ecological grief. I was talking to a friend of mine who's really involved in Sunrise Movement in Iowa. And I was like, I feel like I don't have a lot of time. And he was like, I mean, yeah, we don't, you know, like you might just be feeling what's true and you might be feeling the grief of sort of like the eco side that our species has perpetuated. And I think that that's also part of it. So, um, but I also think like probably humans will die. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel a particular attachment to our species, really. Me either. <laughs> yeah. Like I was saying my mom and she was like, yeah, most species live for 500,000 years. We've been alive for 250,000 years. Like this idea that people have where they're like millions of years in the future and we have colonized the entire star system. It's like, first of all, let's stop colonizing things. Yeah. Second of all, like, I, I don't know. I hope this doesn't get me into very bad trouble. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not like, I'm not like Thanos. You right, know, right. Not, like, <laughs> trying to, it's very, very, very sad what we're doing to other species that are, you know, pretty blameless in this. Um, but I guess, yeah, I, I don't think it's the end. I don't think it's final. I think that we're here for a very short time. And um, I think we're here to learn and feel. So I want to do as much learning and feeling as I can while I'm while I'm on this planet. Oh, feeling. It's annoying. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the only way. I am an alcoholic. <laughs> so... I do wonder, and you can say as little or a bunch about this as you want, how sure. the hell you've stayed sober through all this shit <laughs> and continue yeah. to, like, now you're going through a divorce. I mean, that would be my time to hit it hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, 100%. Um, so when I first had my brain hemorrhage and, and I was provisionally diagnosed with brain cancer, a friend of mine came over and she was like, okay, I know that you're sober, but like, she didn't really understand that I was like really sober for a reason. And she was like, but you can drink now. I mean, right. Like this is a great excuse. And I was like, a hundred percent, I can drink. But given my general behavior, when I drink, I'm most likely going to alienate everybody around me. Mm -hmm. And so I'll go through this and I'll get to quote unquote, be drunk, right. I'll get that imagined relief. Although actually when I drink, it's not relief and it's not fun. It's just like demoralizing and kind of sucks, but I still, you know, imagine it's going to be amazing, but I'm probably going to be alone. Right. Um, 
Or I can try and stay sober one day, one hour, one minute at a time, ask for help constantly, and at least go through this with people. And that kept me from picking up a drink for, you know, those years. Um, I think now, I mean, honestly, like getting divorced is more painful than all of that medical stuff. Um, because for me, I mean, it feels like a form of death. It feels like a form of realizing how much I tried to make something work that wasn't working, like how much I abandoned myself, mm -hmm. how little I really knew my husband, how little my husband really knew me. I had a dream about him last night that I was saying like, okay, so you're choosing your computer over me. I just want to be clear. And he was like, yes. And I was like, okay, then we're getting divorced. And he was like, yes, a hundred percent. And I was like, okay, I'm just really clearly articulating this. And he was like, yes. And then two minutes later, he was like utterly baffled. And that's basically what happened. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's like, I dreamed reality, which is when I left, he was like, what the fuck? This is out of nowhere. And I was like, this is in fact the opposite of out of nowhere. Right. But that pain, I mean, I didn't want to drink, but I did feel suicidal from mm -hmm. that pain. Like just to be really real, like yeah. last summer. And it was weird because I was like on book tour knowing that I was leaving my husband. Ugh. Being asked to talk about the marriage in the book and being like, when is this airing? You know, because I hadn't told him yet. So if it was airing before I knew I was going to leave, yeah. I mean, it was very weird. That sounds stressful as fuck. But I felt so trapped legally because I didn't know a lot of things about marriage that I know now. Like marriage, I have a fiduciary duty to my spouse. I actually can't kick my spouse out of a shared home. I can't deny my spouse access to money. I can't cut him off of credit cards. All the things that you do when you break up with somebody yeah. you can't do when you're married. So huh. I'm still paying his health insurance and I'm still paying spousal support, you know, which is infuriating. Mm -hmm. So that pain, I was like, there's no way out. There's no, I'm trapped forever. I didn't want to drink. I did sometimes think like, I, I should just kill myself. Like I was like, there's, there's literally no exit. There's no relief. Yeah. I, I went um, through a depression in the fall, which was really the first time I genuinely considered that. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been thinking a lot about like you mentioned death and do I have that much time? You know, I'm not suicidal anymore, but it kind of set me off on this preoccupation with just like you said, what do I want more of? What am I here for? How long, you know, if I only have a couple of years, right. What is this, how I would want my life to look, but I too, like didn't really want to drink when I was right. <laughs> it's like that because is not gonna, we know it doesn't work. Right. You know, like it just, I mean, and, and recently, which, which made me suicidal. Cause it's like, even the thing that I've used for so long for relief, like there is no relief. Fuck. Right. Like, yeah. Right. And as soon as I start thinking like, Ooh, like other people get to drink and I don't, then I know I'm like, I should probably talk to, a, to, to somebody else who's also trying not to drink and just sort of be like, is it, is it cool? Is it fun? Does it work out? You know? Yeah. Or maybe reread some writing that I've done, which is like, cause I've been sober 12 and a half years. And so sometimes my alcoholism feels a little bit theoretical. Like it'll feel like, Oh, it's like my thinking or it's my, you know, I have an alcoholic relationship with sugar. Sure. But sometimes I have to be like, no, Eva, you have an alcoholic relationship to alcohol. It's like right. this great onion article. That's like, I'm like a chocoholic, but for alcohol, mm -hmm. you know, I have to be like, no, I'm an alcoholic, but for drinking. Yeah. <laughs> and when I drink, I always do cocaine. And then I always think it's a really good idea to get in between people's marriages. Uh -huh. And I think it's a really cool idea to like 
spend all my money, like tell all the secrets. Yeah. And then people don't want to hang out with me. Right. It's not that I get to like dance on a table and be like, let my hair down. Right. <laughs> you know? Yes. I relate. Yes. Ultimately, it sounds like kind of what keeps you sober is other people. Yeah. That's I mean, cool. and a, and a working conception of a higher power. Right. I think Connection. I yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I'm going to go with the big one that I told you I'd try I'd talk to with my last guest, but we lost all the content. Right. But since your book is called how to be loved and it's about mm. how to be loved, how do you define love? Mm. I mean, so many different ways. Um, I think love is a form of care and ideally unconditional care, unconditional with like a few conditions. Like if somebody is harming you, don't, you know, right. But really like, I feel like I love others when I think about them and I think about how I can give them sort of my best attention. It, it feels like it's a sense of, it's really a sense of what Allison gave me, which is like a very clear eyed, very direct look at who I am mm. and then a full acceptance of that. So yeah. I don't believe in tough love. Um, I don't think that's love. That seems like punishment. What about, I love you, but I don't agree with your lifestyle. You know, when I came out as gay, I love you. I just don't, I don't agree. I'm never going to agree oh. with that or whatever. That doesn't sound like love to me. Yeah. I mean, not saying your family doesn't love you, but like for me, if somebody's like, I love you, but right. If the, if the, but isn't like, but I can't handle your stealing all my money for drugs. So I'm not going to let you in the house again, right. you know, or whatever it is. Like if it's like, I love you, but um like your personality is bad you know that's actually not love like i think love is being like oh i love you you're gay that's new for me that's uncomfortable i see that it's really harming you when i don't do my own work to like get okay with it i mean that's what i want it's funny my grandma sent me this email asking me about sort of what i got out of like hanging out with people who are sober and i was like you know i feel unconditional love and she was like well i know at least two people in your family who unconditionally love you and i realized that she thinks that she unconditionally loves me, yet I get a lot of comments about my weight and the clothes that I'm wearing and the people that I date and how, you know, I get a lot of like helpful suggestions. Right. And I was like, that's actually not unconditional. Do you think she still loves you though? Oh, 100%. And I think that she believes that she unconditionally loves me. But, but I think that like if the person receiving my love doesn't feel it as love, then it's not yeah i mean do you feel do you feel that your family members that like don't agree with your lifestyle how, how do you feel about them no oh uh, oh um i mean they're my family members <laughs> i don't feel that you know we have authentic relationships because right. it's like then what is love <laughs> or do they love me just the you know the best they know how without having integrated their own trauma right um, yeah. I mean, that's a huge thing is like, right. Do they, I mean, my aunt and uncle are like Trump supporters Same. and like single issue voters Yeah, because the single issue, which is abortion rights impacted their lives gravely in a way that they have not been able to work through. Huh. And so I understand like they are coming from a place of profound trauma and it has just turned into like hatred, but I don't hang out with them. Cause I'm like, I can't like, I just can't fuck with that. Yeah. Like, 
this level of like racism and yeah and and it's hard you know i had a, a dude texted me recently that i don't know that well and he was like can i ask, can i get your female perspective and i was like oh i should not say yes but i said yes and <laughs> he said something like you know women say men are privileged but aren't some women privileged and i was like he was, and then he was like, could you explain to me how men are privileged? And I just said, like, have you done your own reading on right. this? No. And a friend of mine was like, honestly, he doesn't know. And I was like, I don't know. So I did not meet that person with love. I met that person with like contempt and judgment, you know? Yeah. I was like, you cannot be a dude who lives in Oakland in the year 2020 and be like, wait, structural privilege? What? Yeah, it's insane to me. But yeah, I, I've had to cut off certain family members yeah. for the same reason. That's tough. I'm sorry. That is. I mean, I'm okay with it <laughs> at this right. point. I mean, like, you grow up around dinner tables, you know, hearing the shit that my uncle would say, and, and he's still exactly the same 34 years later. Wow. Uh, and, wow. and now he has a president that says the shit he's been saying his whole life. Right. Right. So it's like, no, I'm done. I don't need to argue about this anymore. Right. <laughs> So what's next for you in the writing world or in the, you sound like you don't want to be a consultant necessarily forever. <laughs> I hope none of my clients are listening. Sorry. <laughs> I love you all. No, I said it. I mean, I was like, um, so I'm, I'm working on a novel actually. Oh, um, I've noticed a lot of memoirists, their second books are novels. And I was, I was like, hmm, that's weird. And now I sort of get it. It's so much fun to just make everything up. And it really is just telling me what it wants to be. So I asked my agent, I was like, can we sell this? She was like, let me know when you have the full draft. Right. I, you know, I have like 10 pages. And I was like, <laughs> Ready to go. there. so that's really fun. I mean, that's like a super special, awesome treat. And then um, I didn't know I really want to have like an eat, pray, love experience. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to like give up my apartment and travel to somewhere and have some sort of surprising thing. Um, I hope to be legally divorced fairly soon um we'll see uh, -huh. uh so really i mean i feel like i'm at a sort of precipice the things that i know that i value are like freedom and writing which mm -hmm. is sort of what i said at the beginning um and so just orienting my life around that yeah i don't know i'm getting surgery soon that's the thing that's next but so many my... surgeries in your life dude. dude this is my seventh annual surgery that's insane so, yeah are you ever just like what the when oh yeah constantly yeah. yeah i'm like are you fucking kidding me <laughs> so i'm fighting with my insurance company to get them to cover it so i keep tweeting at them you know good tweet the, um tweet the shit out of them yeah i'm like i think that they did not do their research before fucking me over a little bit right yeah. <laughs> you know who um, i am <laughs> right i'm like i'm very persistent i have 100 twitter followers <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. I'm excited. I'm excited to see what happens. I mean, I'll keep writing books. You know, that's, that's really like, I know I'm here to write books and I wanted this book to be the first of many. I mean, I've always wanted to write books. And so when all this stuff happened to me, I was like, once I was past it, I was like, Oh, great. Now I have a plot you right. know, for, for a memoir. Like this yeah. is great. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to be it's not like I had a story that I wanted to tell and the book was a vehicle. Right. It's like I had a literary ambition and then I found a story that could be, you know, that could right. be turned into a book. So that's interesting. Yeah. Whenever people thank me for sharing my story, I get really resentful because I'm like, <laughs> no, I like made art. Yeah. You know? Like this, the whole thing is if it makes you feel some type of way, that's art. It's right. not 
it's not like you know yeah just gonna end on the note of resentment at nice people (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) i love all my readers uh well thank you for sharing your story (laughs) just kidding it is art i can't wait to get the paper back actually got uh, the audiobook so i read while you read to me oh that's that's wild it was i love doing the audiobook it was so yeah. fun it's yeah it's better to hear it out of the author's mouth i feel like well thank you so much oh, thank you your questions were so thoughtful i really oh, appreciate it no problem talk soon i hope so thanks again for tuning in You can check out Eva's work at evahagberg.com and can purchase her memoir, How to Be Loved, anywhere books are sold. If you liked what you heard, again, I beg of you, please take a moment to write a review of the Situation in the Story podcast on Apple and drop a rating so I can continue sitting down with amazing writers from all over the world. Thank you. Until next time.